It's time to breathe new life into the social entrepreneur by empowering you to make a living through fulfilling work that will impact lives. You'll make money, but more importantly, you'll make a difference. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. It's time to build a business with purpose. Now here's your host, Adam Force. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your host, Adam Force. Thank you for joining the show today. Very excited. We have a very, very special guest that we're bringing to you. Um, she actually was a 2017 Skull Award winner for social entrepreneurship. Um, she is the co-founder and CEO of a pretty awesome organization called Build Change. Um, and it says it in the name a bit. And what their mission is, is to reduce uh, deaths, injuries, economic losses, uh, all caused by housing and school collapses um, brought on by earthquakes and typhoons. And this is all in emerging nations. One of the things I really love is that they're, they're training local builders, homeowners, engineers, and government officials to actually take on these projects themselves. They help bring about uh, economic growth, um, job creation, equality, uh, you name it, and the list goes on. So they have a pretty powerful vision, and they live by a lot of great core principles. So we're excited to talk to Dr. Hausler. Um, guys, this, this edition of the magazine is in our, on our new platform, so we hope that you're loving it. We hope you give us some feedback. Um, you know, this is something we're always trying to do is evolve based on, on what you guys are telling us. So for all the feedback we have gotten so far, we really do appreciate it. Um, we hope to continue to grow this magazine to be something very special and powerful for you um, as you are on your journey as a social entrepreneur. So without further ado, um, let's jump in to this conversation. Guys, don't forget to stop by the App Store and leave us that review. It's very, very helpful, and we appreciate seeing the feedback. Um, so, all right, let's get into it. I know you're going to dig this. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining the Change Creator Podcast Show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk. You have so much going on, and um, you just had your recent award with the Skull uh, World at the Skull World Forum. Um, so, yes. you know, we want to dive into all the stuff that you're doing and how you're helping these people with your amazing skills in engineering. Um, but before we get into the details, you know, I just I, I want to get a little background as usual. It's usually like to tee this up and just give people a sense of where you're coming from. So before um, you started everything that you've been working on you know what, what were you doing before you did build, uh, build change I was in grad school studying civil engineering at UC Berkeley but before that I was in the private sector I was working in the engineering consulting industry and before that I was a bricklayer I grew up in a small town outside of Chicago and spent my summers working for my dad building houses laying bricks so, so that's how you got into the idea of engineering. You, you just kind of was in the family and you just kind of got involved. You were in the environment. <laughs> Yes. Well, my dad didn't have, my dad didn't go to college, so he wanted to be an architect. Mm -hmm. um, but he went to work right away, uh, started a small business and uh, inspired both my sister and I to study engineering. But yes, house building has always been in our blood. Yeah. Yeah. And so you took a liking to engineering. You know, so a lot of times parents tell, you know, kind of suggest things to kids and they're like, yeah, right. I'm not doing that. <laughs> 
Well, I loved it. And I, I love the problem solving aspect. Yeah. I, I, I love solving problems. I love the engineering challenge, but I, there were some parts of it that I didn't like so much. I felt at various different points of my career and in grad school that it was a little bit far removed from people. I, I didn't really see how what I was doing in engineering was directly affecting someone's life. And that is one of the things that led me to start Build Change. Right. So, so I guess it sounds like even from an early uh, point in your life, you had a interest in doing something that was meaningful. Um, why was that? Why did, why did you feel like I need to do work that's impacting someone's life? So engineering may not be for me. What sparked that kind of feeling? I think what really sparked it was the earthquake in Gujarat, India in 2001. Okay. I I was in grad school at the time. This earthquake killed about 20,000 people. And it was the earthquake that really got my attention when people died because their house collapsed on them. Mm. So this is a completely preventable problem. We often say it's not the earthquake that kills people. It's a collapse of a building, a poorly yeah. built building in this case. And here I had this background in masonry construction and I was studying engineering and I thought this is a problem. Well, first of all, it's not right um, that so many people die just because they can't access technology or they can't afford to build a safe house. Um, I, I think housing is a, is a basic a human right and especially safe housing. So I felt like this is a, this was wrong. And I also felt like this was a problem that I could solve with my background um, in masonry and construction and, and studying engineering. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And you know, I, I think you hit a key thing that has run through my head and, and has come from a lot of big thinkers where they say things, you know, it's just not right that someone doesn't have access to what is a basic human right. And, yes. and having this type of protection with this just basic housing. I mean, that's a, and that's just essential to, to, to living life. And, you know, so is food and water and so many people. Mm -hmm. There's so many of these areas of basic human needs that are just kind of falling behind the eight ball and, and not um, in a good place for so many people. So I, I love seeing, you know, that kind of spark. And it always seems to be an experience, you know, some experience which you just described that really sparks this empathy towards someone's situation um and so it's really it's really a powerful story that you have so like once that happened what, what kind of steps did you take to say all right well this is my new direction this is my now you feel like this is your life purpose right Yes. And I wasn't, but I wasn't really sure what to do. So I, I went to India on a Fulbright fellowship to basically understand and, and study how are people rebuilding after this disaster? Are they taking the opportunity to rebuild safely? Yeah, are they yeah. building local capacity? And so that's always been a kind of a fundamental first step of build changes model is this learn first part, listen to the stakeholder, understand their situation, understand why things went wrong in the first place to try to understand the, you know what needs to be changed yeah that's interesting so you actually did some on the ground um, communications and basically mm -hmm. uh, research um, that kind of gathered information from the community and what did you find when you went and you when you explored that yeah, that is that was an essential first step, and I it was so interesting to talk to folks who were rebuilding after that earthquake in Gujarat. Um, the government had given people options; they they basically gave people an option of either. Um, having a house built for them or given to them by an NGO. Basically the NGO selected the design and the construction and, and basically did all the work or homeowners could choose to make their own decisions and uh, choose their own 
layout, choose their own building materials, and rebuild with a cash grant. Now, the cash grant was conditional. Mm. People couldn't get the cash grant unless they followed the basic requirements for um, strengthening the buildings, the, the basic uh, building code. Um, so people had these two options. They could either be given a house or they could um, drive the process themselves. They could make the decisions about the materials and architecture and rebuild with this cash grant and installments. And what I found was there was a huge difference in the level of satisfaction with the end product among these two groups. The people who were able to make the decisions, they were able to choose to have a covered porch. They were able to choose where was their toilet. They were able to choose to have an area to keep their livestock. They were able to make decisions about architecture. They were so much more satisfied than the homeowners that had been given a house because the homeowners that had been given a house um, there were issues with the architecture. The toilet was inside. The people wanted the toilet outside. The windows were too small. It was too hot. There were all these issues with these buildings. Hmm. And though it's, it seemed like the easy approach, right, right to right. just you know mass produce houses at scale, and there's an economy of scale there, um, it's not the most... Um, satisfying approach. It doesn't really empower the homeowner to um, be engaged in the process, and it doesn't encourage the homeowner to invest and to um, implement measures in the building to make sure it's built safely. So the cash grant approach actually incentivizes uh, building safely. It incentivizes complying with the building code. And so it's a first step toward um, enforcing a building code in a, in a context where it's very difficult to do so. So this, so Bill Change basically picked up this approach, this conditional cash plus technical assistance approach. And when I looked at the houses that were built this way, they pretty much complied with the building code, um, the building standard that was in place there. Um, there are a few issues, a few technical challenges, but for the most part, the buildings were built well. And so this approach really works. It satisfies what we what we call our three S's or what we defined as our three S's back then. Um, safety, satisfaction, and sustainability. Safety, the building meets the basic standards for earthquake resistance. Satisfaction, the homeowner is happy and satisfied and confident that the structure will keep them safe. And sustainability for us back then in, in you know the early 2000s meant the process continues. People continue to build safe houses in the future because this process also incorporated capacity building, capacity building for engineers, uh, on-the-job training for builders and other construction professionals. So this approach has worked in the past and it's the approach that we advocate for in the future. We've now implemented it in Indonesia, in China, in Haiti, in Nepal, in the Philippines, um, in Colombia and Guatemala. Uh, this homeowner driven approach um, produces um, successful outcomes. Wow, that's pretty pretty amazing. Um, I, I guess I'm curious. So, when you started the process, though, who did you have to work with in the country? How, how did you start figuring out who you have to talk to? I mean, you're talking about helping people build homes. There has to be organizations that are established and rules and policies. Were there roadblocks that you had to uh, figure out how to overcome um, to do things the way you were hoping to do them? 
Yes, and there are a lot of stakeholders involved in housing design and construction. So we try to work with everyone who's involved and we work very much from the bottom up as well as the top down. And from the top down, you know, a lot of times these disasters happen because either there is no building code or building guideline or it's not enforced. And most likely it's the latter. Usually in every country, usually in every country where build change works, there is some form of building code, but it's not enforced or it's not or it's too difficult to use for a simple house. Many of the countries where we work, there are very well established building codes, but they're for commercial buildings or hospitals or skyscrapers. And it's very hard to take those building codes and apply them to a simple house. So build change bridges that gap. We develop simple guidelines, bridging guidelines that um, translate what's in the building code to what a local engineer and a local builder actually really needs to understand to build safely. So we partner with with um, local governments and national governments, ministries of public works, ministries of housing, ministries of education to develop these simple building codes and guidelines for building safe new houses as well as retrofitting existing uh, existing houses. Then we we hire local professionals. So the majority of people who work for Build Change are from Indonesia. They're from Nepal. They're from Haiti. They're local engineers and construction professionals. And we train them in the basics of safe construction or the basics of retrofitting, strengthening existing buildings. Mm -hmm. And then we deploy them into the community. And they're the ones that work side by side with the homeowner to go through the process of designing their home or evaluating it for a retrofit and to coach them in the process of hiring a skilled builder. We train builders on the job. We also work with homeowners to enable them to understand how to purchase a good quality building material. And so that's where the ground, the bottom up comes in, where we're on the ground working yeah. directly with homeowners one by one. But at the same time, we're working with the government to develop, expand, add to the building codes um, and to create an environment where we're encouraging enforcement of those building standards. So, you know, we, we talked a little bit before before about the conditional cash grant. And so when we use this approach of providing a subsidy or cash grant to the homeowner, but the homeowner can only get it if they follow the building standard, this is a first step toward building code enforcement. Um, on my last trip to Haiti um, a couple of months ago, we were we handed over or did the final inspection of the first few houses we, we, we have retrofitted in partnership with the Haiti uh, Housing Ministry. And this was a fantastic experience because we had all the stakeholders right there in the room doing the final inspection on the building. The, um, the UCLBP, which is the housing unit within the government, the Ministry of Public Works, uh, the build change engineer, the build change architect, the homeowner, and the builder were all there, all checking the checklist um, to ensure that this building was retrofitted properly. And this is, it was a huge, it was a huge event and something that we have been working toward. But this is just something that happens normally in the U.S., right? I mean, the building inspector comes and checks the checklist to make sure the building is built correctly, and this is normal. And we're trying to make this normal in the countries where we work, where um, building permits are issued, building codes are enforced, yeah. um, people, and ultimately people build safely. So I, I guess through through what you just said, you went through a lot. I, I guess I'm curious, you know, if, I, if I'm a young entrepreneur, I'm interested, one of the, the more difficult, and I think over 
overwhelming things is if I'm from the United States or another country, but my the work I'm doing is to help people in a country outside of mine, um, it's like, well, I have to fly out there. I have to, you know, get involved with these communities. And it could be kind of an overwhelming, surreal type of experience. Like, yeah, like I'm really going to do that, right? And I, I'm just curious. So if, you, if you're looking at helping these people who are in Haiti, for example, um, and you know, as, as someone who does uh, building and things like that as an engineer, you know, you're going to have to go through certain government groups and, and work on the policies and get things in, uh, in force. How do you, who do you reach out to and how did you start getting in touch with the right people and how do you get them on board with, hey, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, my name's Elizabeth and I'm an engineer. Um, here's what I want to do. Like, how does that happen? You know, how do you make that happen and get people on your side? with that stuff yeah that's a great question well you really just you have to get on the plane i mean you have to get out there i think that's one of the it is one of the most overwhelming challenging thing is taking that first step and and taking that risk and mm. getting out into the field but that it's such a rewarding experience to be out there and to be talking with people one-on-one -on -one and to be able to work to solve the problem but then how do we how do we build partnerships so we I started Build Change um, in 2004, a few months before the Indian Ocean tsunami happened. Yeah. And we were thinking about starting our first program in India because I had just been on our, there on the Fulbright Fellowship. But then the Indian Ocean tsunami happened and we looked at Indonesia and the massive amount of damage that was there and the likelihood of more earthquakes. You know, Indonesia has a complex system um, of faults and it's likely to have more earthquakes. So we decided to um, go work in Indonesia and, and, and support the tsunami reconstruction. And I just, I basically, I just got on a plane. I went to Aceh about three months after the tsunami. I went to, um, I started going to the shelter cluster meetings and I met Mercy Corps. And Mercy Corps is a fantastic uh, relief and development organization that had been um, working on removing debris and other immediate emergency phase aspects and said, okay, we're ready to work on housing and we're looking for a partner to work on housing. And I basically raised my hand and said, um, we, we were ready. We, we want to work. We want to work on housing as well. And here's how we want to do it. We really want to engage the homeowners. We want them to make the decisions. We want to train local builders in the process. And they really liked the idea. And they took a risk on us. Mm. Um, you know, it was basically just me at that point. And I studied and I built houses for my dad, but hadn't actually implemented any programs. And because Mercy Corps believed in, in what we were doing, we were able to launch our first program and, and go from there. And so our first partnerships were primarily with other NGOs. So other larger NGOs that raise a lot of money after a disaster, but maybe don't have the kind of technical niche expertise that we do. And they saw the value that we add in, in, in being able to come up with a design that's locally appropriate and easy to build and, and, and incorporating the capacity building aspects. Wow. And, and so most of our partnerships in the post-disaster context, when we're facing a large scale reconstruction have been with other larger NGOs and so we've worked hard to build those relationships with those um, with those stakeholders wow I love it I mean it's just very ambitious and um, it takes a lot of I guess courage I want to say too you know like you said it's that big first step that people have to take to, to start getting the the momentum and make it a reality um, and it costs money to do these things too so you have to actually put money down on the table to to fly out 
there and spend time and and actually start pursuing these things so I give a big kudos to you um, it's really and look where you are now right if you didn't take that first step this would never have happened yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You must look back and just be like, wow, I can't believe all the things that have snowballed and happened because you just had this, this, you know, passion to pursue it and you just made it happen. Uh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, sometimes I look back and, and, and realize how unpredictable it, it has been because so much of what Build Change has been has done has been driven by disasters. And we can't predict, you know, we couldn't have predicted the tsunami. We couldn't have predicted the earthquake in China that drove us to working there, the earthquake in Haiti. And so it's been it's been unpredictable. It's kind of been an unpredictable ride in some ways, but it's been an interesting experience to, to look at the similarities across programs and cultures and to recognize that, you know, it's the same problem everywhere, right? It's the same technical yeah. issue, you know, poor quality uh, bricks or blocks, um, people not tying their buildings together, you know, not confining it. Yeah. And it's the same challenges with poverty and with access to financing and the same challenges with, you know, people needing jobs in the construction sector. And so whether we're in the Philippines or we're in Haiti or we're in um, Indonesia, it's the same issues. And so we've been able to kind of use the same model in every place where we work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's working and it's pretty amazing. Um, Thank you. What, what is your idea? I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts about social entrepreneurship. And have you seen this, you know, as in recent years, a growing uh, concept? Um, and, and how do you feel? about the future of this type of approach to business? Ah, that's a great question. I love being a social entrepreneur. I feel like it's this, it's this beautiful intersection between capitalism and socialism. Mm. We, we can take the, the best sort of market forces and solutions that we know have worked in the private sector and we can apply them in a context that benefits the local worker and the local um, not very wealthy homeowner. You know, today we're doing this interview on May 1st. It's International Workers Day. Yeah. And we have in all of our programs um, tried to create an environment where the profits of construction end up primarily in the hands of the local construction worker, the local mason, the local brick producer, the local block producer, you know, people like my dad. And so this being a social entrepreneur allows you to sort of operate in this beautiful space and to be able to pull from both of these worlds to create change that, that, that really benefits everyone. I love that. Really nicely said. And I love what you said about uh, the intersection between capitalism and socialism. You know, everybody, they're so afraid of that word socialism. Um, but, you know, everything has its pros and cons. So I love the yep. how you talk about it as a hybrid. And that's that's really what's happening. And I can see this, this transition of people's mindsets because of the conditions and things that are going on around the world. I see more and more people interested in, in pursuing this type of work because it's just, it feels better and we need more problem solvers so it's really really well said 
Thank you. So, you know, I'm curious then, I want to, you, you have an engineering hat. And it's almost like I talked to Dr. Alistair Harris. He was, um, you know, uh, with Blue Ventures. And uh -huh. he had to put his business hat on, right? Because he was a marine biologist, but he had to start a business to fund what he was doing. So the two areas I want to talk to you about is what has been the, the difference and cha biggest challenge for you as you have to put on a business hat, right, to scale the opportunity and, and make this actually visible and, and get more attention with it, and how you are growing and getting funding uh, for the opportunity. If you could talk about that stuff. Yes, this has definitely been a challenge and a challenge and an opportunity for me to try to put on a business hat as an engineer. But it became so obvious that we needed to do that because when we started working with these block makers in Haiti, you know, concrete blocks are the staple building material mm -hmm. in Haiti. It's they can be very poorly produced. And so we started working with them from a technical side. OK, how do we produce a better block? But we quickly came to realize it was a lot more about cash flow than it was about the technical side. You know, when you're producing a concrete block, it's a cement product. It needs to be cured. It needs to be like, you basically need to leave it in the shade and keep it damp for a while. So the chemical reaction can take place to make it strong. And so, but by doing that, we're basically asking a small business to sit on its inventory. And these are small businesses that need to sell their product in order to um, have the cash to buy the raw materials to make the next batch to, you know, keep their income going. And so we clicked quickly realized that the technical was getting in the way of the of the financial and we really need to see how we can merge those together. So we have a partnership with a microfinance partner in Haiti where we are uh, developing and marketing a product, a financial product, specifically for these businesses because they're really underserved in the market. They're falling, in, they're falling into this gap between microfinance, whose products are too expensive and need to be paid back too quickly, and um, loans that they can get from commercial banks which don't really want to take the risk on these types of businesses. So we sort of quickly kind of tried to put on our financial hat to understand this issue and then to reach out to other partners that we know, know understand it a lot better that, that, than, than we do so that we can um, learn from them and tap into their experience. But, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting challenge for Build Change right now is how we use financial instruments and financial products yeah. to, um, to create change in the industry. You know, there's such an obvious insurance opportunity right here, right now. You know, if you're, if you're a homeowner in Florida in a hurricane-prone area, and you yeah. take certain measures like putting storm shutters on your home, you can get a lower insurance premium. So right. why, why don't we have a parallel opportunity in the developing world where if someone strengthens their home, they can get um, an insurance policy at a premium that's, that's, that's affordable and that's lower? Or how can we make this an opportunity for the government where, you know, we're talking about a privately held asset, we're talking about a home, but re the reality when a, when a large earthquake strikes Bogota or Medellin, or Guatemala City or Manila, the government is going to be largely responsible or held accountable for, you know, why wasn't something done and right. to, to basically pay the tab of rebuilding. So how can we create a product that incentivizes governments as well to invest in strengthening um, these buildings? And so, you know, we're we're trying to, to think in this way, and this is what keeps it exciting for me, right? Because it's a new challenge, um, a new opportunity to learn more and to, you know, create different ways of, of making change. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, so you're just, for my own clarity, um, you're a .org, so you are nonprofit currently, correct? 
That's right. Yes. Okay. So you are getting, I guess, funding through grants, fellowships, and I guess partners. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I think we would be a dot com or a for profit if we could make a profit. Um, you know, I come from the engineering consulting industry. I don't come from the nonprofit sector. Yeah. Um, and so Build Change operates a little bit like an engineering consultant, um, but we're quite a bit more than that. But, you know, we're, we're working with low income homeowners who can't really pay to hire an engineer or small businesses yeah. that don't really have the access to right. access this this financing. But so. And we're also, you know, we're not going to create a social enterprise like a brick-making businesses ourselves, right? We'd rather boost up local businesses and see them increase their profits. Right, you don't want to take the business from them, right? Exactly, exactly. So it makes it difficult for us to earn income. We have earned income in the past from our NGO partners who hire us like an engineering consultant. But, you know, NGOs have a lot less money these days to work with than they did after the tsunami. Um, And so that market is, is, you know, we can't really cover our costs now. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, I was just agreeing with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, but there is growing interest among our government partners and development banks to invest in technical assistance, invest in the engineering solutions. And we have some um, government funding, but it's still not at the point where it covers our costs. Gotcha. That's interesting. I mean, now you you are providing the designs as well for better structure, right? Is that correct? Yes. So, so can you license the designs? I guess you know, so that the 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 local um, contractors and people who are doing the development and stuff like that can. I don't know. I just a random thought because I, I, I spoke to someone else too who has a, a social entrepreneur uh, uh, enterprise, and they are selling you know cook stoves because they're using kerosene and wood fire, and they're doing these more sustainable like you know cook stoves, but they are selling them as a product to these these people and then also people in the community can be like sales reps for those types of things as well so you can create a job opportunity if you will it's just interesting to see it's a different dynamic that you have and so how can you leverage it so that you can benefit the community but actually make it a profitable um, for-profit business which is a it's just an interesting problem to try and solve and and yes, and we've we've been asked that question before of like, isn't there some product or isn't there some technology that could be used to improve the buildings? And well, I mean, there's a if we try to limit the use of the technology or license the technology, then I'm afraid it doesn't really scale. Yeah. And plus, we're not we're basically working with existing technologies: bricks, mortar, cement, concrete, rebar. Um, yeah. Technologies that really already exist, because making those small changes those, to those technologies makes it much easier to scale. And so, it's not really anything that we can we can license or, or we can make a, a profit off of, or at least we just haven't really figured that out yet um right because because i'm afraid if we put limits on it um it won't scale we've we basically have outsourced all of our or open sourced all of our um not outsourced open source open sourced all of our um 
resources, all of our technical materials, people can access on our website because we want them used as widely as possible. So that's, you know, limited our opportunity to earn income off those. Yeah. Well, and that's really, I mean, I, I've seen people do that and make it open source for the same reasons. And I think it, I feel like in my gut, it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. So I, I, I get it. I totally get it. And I think sooner or later things will come up that you'll be able to try to, to monetize or you'll figure something out. But it seems like the core of it, those designs and getting, making sure people have the most important thing first and foremost is making sure people get stable construction, <laughs> you know? Yes, so, exactly. You know, it's yeah. maybe something that comes out of that later that could become um, monetized. But so really interesting. Um, so I, I'm curious then if you were to start over, um, is there anything you would do differently um, since you started? And now that you know what you know, um, would you do anything different? Hmm. That's a great question. It's always a tough one, but I like to throw it out there. <laughs> I would I would start earlier. I you know I took a kind of circuitous path to get here. I you know I worked in the private sector. I went to grad school. I went to Fulbright, and it, you know yeah the, you know several years before, went by before I had the idea. And so and so I would I would start earlier. I think I would try. I think I would try to raise more money faster in the early days. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in the field. I lived in Indonesia. I lived in China. I implemented programs. We were very dedicated to getting it right on the ground. And I didn't really sort of, you know, try to develop a team and develop partnerships right. and develop fundraising until, you know, five or six years into it. And I wish I would have started that earlier yeah. um, because, you know, we now have this fantastic team. We've got about 200 people working with us. We've got 10 people on our senior management team and they're so it's incredible um these people that i work with and i you know five six years ago they we we weren't there and i I wish i would have had sort of more funny and more opportunity to hire uh to hire partners and and team members to grow the organization more quickly yeah 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 um two things that are i'm curious about is going to be one how did you afford to be out there all that time doing your research and and that now were you at that time getting some kind of grants to afford what you were doing or were you getting paid doing some kind of consulting or something um i had a full i had a fulbright fellowship and oh and, oh okay. okay but that was that was about i mean it was it was literally about four hundred dollars a month oh. and when i <laughs> and when i found out it was so i was like oh my gosh i mean it was one of my hesitations do i really want to continue to be a poor grad student for another year because that's essentially what i was i was in grad school for five years and then i, I went on the fulbright fellowship and i you know and i realized it was so little money i, I you know i had a dilemma should i really do this or not yeah. and but then in india that's actually quite a lot of money to live on so it so it wasn't um it wasn't that difficult I also had a I had a very kind um significant other who was very supportive of of what I was doing and you know sharing costs and that sort of thing so but yeah I mean I I guess that's it's I it's a risk that you take in the early days I guess to you know deal with that salary insecurity and um but but in the end, I'm I'm glad I'm glad I took it. Mm. Were you ever really 
on did you ever grow uncertain a lot of times you know entrepreneurs start something right these social entrepreneurs and they're nervous that they're doing some some passion project they're not going to make a lot of money they won't figure it out and i think just any entrepreneur when you're getting into it there are hard times where you're just you don't have the mentorship maybe and you don't have the support and it's taking you're not getting traction did you ever feel that geez am i am i doing the right thing is this going to work out for me like did you ever have those those struggles yourself Sure. I think that there was a moment or, you know, a series of moments in Aceh in Indonesia after the tsunami where we had, you know, implemented our program on our own. And then we started to support other NGOs to improve their programs. And we had we there were some really poor quality houses built there. And we we we, we shined the light on that. And it and I'm glad we did in the end. But it really was a challenge because it resulted in some contractors losing money it resulted in some NGOs losing face it resulted in um, organizations having to tear down houses and build them over homeowners were rioting and, and protesting because of the quality of construction and we stood up for that but it was a tough environment we had a moment where we were interrogated by the Indonesian police because of this issue and it was a little bit scary and I those were the times where I, I did wonder if this if I chose in the right career path but in the end, I think it again. It was the right. It was the right thing to do to stand up for safety and stand up for quality of life and stand up for good quality construction. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love what you're saying, and and I I can appreciate that you stick to your values basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Now, would you ever trade if you could make um, five million dollars a year or more? Would you ever change what you're doing? Could I take the $5 million a year and use it for build change? No, it would be for for something that's not impacting lives. It would be just just for the money. No, no, no. I wouldn't do it. I often think I would love to have a lot more money because then I could spend it on good things. But no, I would definitely not trade it for something that was just about money. No way. (laughs) Um, And before I forget, you mentioned, you know, we talked about all this stuff you guys are doing and and it's kind of like helping people, you know, build these better homes and understand design. You're consulting. You mentioned that you're building an app and I wanted to bring that up just to this is another another component of your your brand network basically that you're bringing to life to help people maybe you want to share a little bit just about why you're why are you creating an app and how is that going to help further yeah thank you yeah there so much of what we do is so you know the tech is very low tech it's bricks and mortar and, and concrete and those sorts of things so so we've developed this app for the reconstruction in Nepal which has just been officially approved by the Nepal government as the housing reconstruction app to be used there to uh, basically to provide information and access to engineering support to homeowners who are rebuilding and retrofitting uh, since those earthquakes two years ago. You know, Nepal had these devastating earthquakes and, you know, hundreds of thousands of homes have been affected by this in some in very remote, difficult to access um, locations. And so this app provides a connection between the homeowners who are rebuilding and engineering support. You can get design advice. Um, it helps to facilitate access to subsidy distribution. We also have outposts, um, training centers and resource centers in the earthquake affected areas where people can come and download the app. They can access free Wi-Fi and they can get the information that, that they need. And so it's a way of reaching more people with even, even more people with more information on how to rebuild safely because we're not going to be able to visit 
visit every site every day. Um, and this, again, cl closes that information and knowledge gap that we know exists out there. Awesome. Oh, sounds wonderful. Well, uh, my last my last thing before we wrap up, um, I just lost my thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things, I, this is selfish for me, is I'm very curious about, um, as anybody is raising any kind of funding now, did you do any formal, like, pitches for, for um, venture capitalist funding and stuff like that at all? We haven't, not for venture capital funding, although we are now thinking about the different opportunities for impact investment or, mm. or equity investment and build change. And so if you can coach me through that process, yeah. that would be great. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I have some good interviews coming up with people that have really gone through that kind of process extensively. Yes. And that's pure, purely out of my own curiosity, too, which I know the, the people listening here want to know, too. How do, you, how do you get in front of these guys? What are they looking for? How did you get their attention? And so, you know, we're going to figure that out. So I'll keep you posted. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. No problem. Um, listen, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been a really awesome conversation. And I appreciate you sharing everything that you're doing and some of the strategies and insights of how you did it. Um, let's just give a shout out so people know what's the pl best place for them to find what you're doing. And, and guys, she's going to tell you their, their website. And there's such cool information there. Go to their uh, impact and their resources that infographic you have actually let's call this out a little bit because it's really cool they talk about the timeline of 2004 to 2015 and just for an example they've trained over 25,300 people Yes. They have uh, over 245,000 people now living and learning in safer homes and schools. Um, and the, this infographic, we'll share it on our on our site when we post up the uh, piece, guys. You can check it out. Um, but really powerful stuff. Lots of good information here. Um, so why don't you let them know how they can best connect and learn more and get involved with what you're doing? Yeah, our website is buildchange.org. Uh, we're on Facebook as well, Build Change, and Twitter at Build Change. And I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Hausler. Dr. Elizabeth Hausler. At Elizabeth Hausler. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much. You know where to reach me. If you ever need anything, I'm here. Um, and we'll talk soon. Great. Thank you so much. Such a great conversation and opportunity. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Your Bye. next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast. Yeah.